so many ways. It's uh, good to be together. We'll, we'll see how we're this, this is we'll see how we're doing here. So, Craig, did I need to grab something else? How are we now? All right. Well, good afternoon. It's uh, no, it's it's good to it's good to be together today. You know, we we've already been reminded in, in so many ways that we've come together in this place to worship God, and some of you've made it through some just exciting, wonderful weeks, and some of you, it's almost like you kind of just crawled through the doors this morning, or for those of you online, crawled out of bed to turn your computer on. But whatever our weeks have brought us, we gather together for the same purpose, and that's to worship God who's with us. And if nothing else, we're just reminded of the fact that, first of all, God loves you wherever you are. And secondly, God is at work in our midst, and God is at work in our church, and God is at work in the world around us. And that's why we gather together to worship, because sometimes, sometimes when we're by ourselves, it's easy to forget those things, right? It's easy to forget that God is with us or that God loves us or that God is working because sometimes it doesn't look like that's true. But we gather together to be reminded of that fact. And so I'm so glad you're with us today. For those who are here in person, for those joining us online, it's just good to be together today as we, we worship our Lord and Savior this morning. You know, we've been in a sermon series over the last several weeks called Dear Church. We're we're looking at the, the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. There are these letters that are addressed to, to the church, inviting the church to, to consider if there are those things that, that we've allowed to get in the way between us and God. We also happen to be in this season of Lent, as we've already talked about a little bit today, this, this season of preparation that leads us up to Easter Sunday. This time in which we just pause and, and allow God to search our hearts and examine our lives to see if there's anywhere where we've gotten off track, to see if there's anything that, that we need to, to surrender to God to allow God to work in us. And so I just continue to invite you in this season to set aside some time to be in prayer, to be in scripture, and just to let God work in your heart as we journey together towards Easter Sunday. Speaking of Easter Sunday, you might have seen the sign out there today. Uh, we are going to have two services this year on Easter. And so we'll have a service at, at 930 and then also at 1115. And so you can come to either of those. They'll be the same or mostly the same. Uh, you can come to either of those services. And, and as Pastor Mindy was praying during her prayer, I would just encourage you to be praying for those people in your life, whether it's your, your family, your neighbors, your friends, just praying for those people who need to experience the resurrection power of God in their lives. And I'd encourage you to invite them, invite them to, to join you here in person, to join you online, but just to for those folks to, to experience the love and grace of God in their lives. Sound good? Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I, I'd invite you to join me in Revelation chapter 3. 
We're going to read the first six verses, and if you're able to this morning, I'd invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Write this to the angel of the church in Sardis. These are the words of the one who holds God's seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, and you're in fact dead. Wake up and strengthen whatever you have left, teetering on the brink of death, for I've found that your works are far from complete in the eyes of my God. So remember what you received and heard. Hold on to it and change your hearts and lives. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know what time I will come upon you. But you do have a few people in Sardis who haven't stained their clothing. They will walk with me clothed in white because they are worthy. Those who emerge victorious will wear white clothing like this. I won't scratch out their names from the scroll of life, but will declare their names in the presence of my father and his angels. If you can hear, listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this this fifth letter was uh, addressed to the church in in Sardis, which which was a city that was located inland, probably about 50 miles in in from the sea, but it was located on uh, important crossroads. And so, because on crossroads, it, it had grown and, and had its time to uh, to flourish. In fact, actually, may, maybe its claim to fame, Sardis is, claims to be the first city that used currency. They used silver and gold to, to pay for items. And the reason they were able to do this is because they had metal workers who figured out how to take the the silver or gold that came out of the earth that was often mixed with with rocks and other things, and they figured out how to purify that. And since they could purify it, they could create uniform coins of silver or gold that they could use to to pay for items. So its its claim to fame is that it was the the first city with currency. As you can imagine, a, a place that would likely have silver and gold, it was located on a mountainside. And this was part of what helped Sardis become a, a strong in city. It actually, is on this mountainside with a fertile valley below. And, and in about the 6th century BC, it was one of the most powerful cities in, in Asia. Part of that was because of its location. Because it was on this side of this mountain, there was really only one way in and out of the city. It was protected on other sides by, by cliffs. And, and so it, its citadel, its, its fortress, where, where its armaments were, was, was considered impenetrable. It, nobody could get into that was their, was their belief. You know what hubris can do to people, don't you? You know, there was a time about a century ago where there was this marvel of technological wonder more advanced than anything ever before with, with more technology, more luxury, more of everything. It was this large ship that everybody thought was unsinkable. And on its maiden voyage, what happened to the Titanic? It sank, right? I mean, hubris can cause these things to happen. And so you can only imagine what happened to the city of Sardis. This city that people thought was so secure, was so strong that nobody ever could get into it. 
in about the 5th or 6th century BC, there was, was somebody who scaled the cliff walls in the middle of the night while everybody was sleeping. And once he got up to the top of the walls, he went to the gate and opened the gate for the armies to march in. This happened a second time several hundred years later. The city that people thought could not be broken into, the people were just not watching. They weren't paying attention. And so in the middle of the night, like a thief coming in the middle of the night, somebody snuck in and opened the gates and allowed the armies to come in, and the city was overtaken. By the time we, we get to the, the first century, when, when, when our letter was, was written here, Sardis's glory days had come and gone. All of its glory days were in the past, and so life was still good, but it wasn't as it had been. So whenever people thought about the good old days, they were those old days, those days in the past that they would look back to. Well, from this letter we just read a few moments ago, it appears as if life in the church really mirrored life in the city. For those in the church, the, the glory days were in the past. The glory days had, were behind it. It's, it's interesting, especially since we've read some of these other letters over the last few weeks, some of the challenges that the other churches faced, Sardis did not face. The church in Sardis was, was not facing persecution. There, there's no mention of persecution here. They weren't struggling with, with, with heresy. They, they weren't struggling with, with people trying to articulate their faith and doing it in ways that weren't faithful to the gospel. There was no opposition from other groups that, that, that the church in Sardis had to deal with. None of those things are, are mentioned in this letter. Do you know why that probably is? You know why none of those things were mentioned there? The church wasn't alive enough to have those struggles. The church wasn't alive enough to have to deal with that. I mean, the, the faith of the church was not challenging the status quo of the community, and so there was no persecution. Why would you persecute people if they're not causing you to, to squirm or if their faith is not challenging you? There was no need for them to be persecuted because their faith wasn't really resulting in anything. There was no struggles with, with heresy. You know when heresy usually seems to happen? It's as the faith of a people is growing or as, as a body of believers is trying to figure out what does it look like for us to live out our faith in these circumstances? You know, the world has changed and some of the issues we're wrestling with are different than before. So what does it look like for us to, to live our faith out in these unique circumstances? And what happens anytime people are trying to figure that out, it takes a little while to kind of figure that out. And sometimes you have people who say, well, let's do this. And sometimes let's do this. And sometimes people get a little bit too far out there. And the church has to say, we appreciate your efforts, but that's a little too far. That's often when heresy comes. But the church in Sardis wasn't wrestling with how to incorporate their faith into the new challenges of reality. The church in Sardis wasn't even growing, so they didn't struggle with heresy. Their faith was not impacting their daily life, and so there was no opposition to them. Their faith was, was, really, well, was really dead. Did you hear those words we read a few moments ago? You have a reputation for being alive, but, but you're dead. It's a picture of, of nominal Christianity. There's a lot of activity, but there's nothing behind it. There's a lot of activity, there's a lot of things happening, but, but it's really dead. 
you've probably heard the saying, all bark and no bite. That's kind of what the faith was like of this church. It was, it was all bark and no bite. There was these things that were seen, but there was no substance or, or significance behind it. You know, as I was thinking on this passage this week, I, I was reminded of, uh, of Mark chapter 11. In the Gospel of Mark, we get to chapter 11, and, and Jesus has, he, he enters into the city of Jerusalem. This is, this is the beginning of Holy Week. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in this mighty, wonderful procession. And then, then on that first day, they, they go back out of the city and they spend the night in, in Bethany. And then the next day, the next day they, they return to the city. This is Passover is just around the corner. And the celebration of Passover is was the celebration of God's faithfulness. This was like the high, holy time for God's people. And Jerusalem was, was the city of David. I mean, this was like the best place ever to celebrate Passover. And so Jesus and his disciples are, are returning back to Jerusalem from, from Bethany. And, and on their way, uh, there, there's this fig tree. And apparently, Jesus wants something to eat, and he sees this fig tree that has leaves, and so he goes to the fig tree hoping to get fruit, but there is no fruit there. And then Mark tells us that the reason there was no fruit there is because it wasn't season for, it wasn't the right season for fruit to be on the tree. But Jesus curses the tree anyway, he says, no one will ever eat from you. That's a little puzzling, isn't it? I mean, if it's not the right season for fruit, why would Jesus curse the tree unless he was hangry or something like that? Like, it doesn't really make sense if we stop at that point. But if we keep reading, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he gets to the temple and he comes into the temple and he doesn't like what he sees. This is the, the, the place in the gospel where Jesus turns over the money changers' tables right? And there, there's a lot involved in that, but let's just try to simplify it down to just a couple of things real quickly. There were a couple of big things that were going on there. On, on one hand, the, there was only a certain group of people who were allowed into the temple. And one of the things we know throughout scripture is God didn't just come to the world for a few people. God came for everyone, right? So Jesus looks around, and, and there's so many people who are excluded from the presence of God. And that just wasn't okay. But the other thing that happened there was, was with those actual money-changing tables themselves. Faith had become a commodity. People could come, they could purchase their sacrifice, make their sacrifice, and go on their way. Their faith was, was just a, a simple economic exchange. It, it was lacking some of the, some of the depth. It was, it was all action on the outside without transformation on the inside. After Jesus leaves the temple and they head back out, they, they go by this fig tree again, and guess what's happened? It's withered. The fig tree has withered. Now, often when we think about how we would arrange things, you and I, we, we tend to think chronologically, right? If we want to know the story about events, we, we tend to walk through this happened first, and then this, and then this, followed by this, followed by this. Now, sometimes we see that in the Gospels, but there's another method of organization that we also find in the Gospels. And that's that often the Gospels are also arranged theologically. 
The reason I say that is because it's not a coincidence that this story of the fig tree begins before and ends after the experience in the temple. It's arranged that way for a reason. In fact, many people think that, that this is an enacted parable. This wasn't a parable that Jesus told with his lips. This was a parable that he lived out with his life. And it's a parable on, on what faith is like for this nominal faith, right? It, for those people who go about doing all of this religious stuff but without anything happening in their heart, it's as good as dead. Just like the fig tree. And just like the church in Sardis, nominal faith is as good as no faith at all. And nominal faith is not just a challenge for the church in Sardis. It's a challenge for the church today. It's a challenge for the church as a whole today. It's also a challenge for us as, as individual Christians. If we're not careful, we can get sucked into a nominal faith. How is it that we can perhaps identify what nominal, nominal faith is? Well, one indicator can sometimes be a, a faith that is easy. A faith that is easy. That was one of the things we, we saw here for the church in, in Sardis. Sardis had no persecution. There was no issues with heresy. There was, there was no opposition to them because their faith was just easy. It fit nicely into everything else, and it didn't gain any attention. Nobody even really noticed that their lives were any different. Their faith was not a challenge to anybody else. And that's not really an adequate picture of this Christian faith to which we're called. If we stop and think about what it means to follow after Jesus Christ, we think about these, these ways our faith is described, that we have to die out to our old selves to be raised up to follow after him, that the least will be the greatest, right? These images of this call we have to repentance, to be changed, for our lives to go a different direction. And that's hard, right? I mean, most people don't like to be told that they need to change, right? How many of you like to be told you need to change? Usually the only people who want to be changed are babies or people who've really hit rock bottom. The rest of us, we don't really like to change. You know, but this faith to which we are called is one of radical change, radical transformation. And that's challenging. And that even hurts sometimes, right? And so if your faith is just easy, if it fits nicely into everything else in life, then that could be, that could be a warning sign. You know, connected to that, one of the other ways we can, we can see uh, about nominal faith is, is if we live this life without challenge. Because one of the things we believe is that as Christians, that, that we are called to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And growing hurts, right? Anytime you want to grow, anytime you want to strengthen, anytime you want to improve, like it hurts. It hurts. You get sore muscles. You get sore joints. Like growth hurts sometimes. You know, another, uh, another thing that we see through Sardis about nominal faith is, a whole lot of activity 
with no significance. There's a whole lot of activity, but there's not really anything behind it. It's, it's just like it's this, this empty activity. You know, you know, we're not going to really go into this today, but there's another danger in the church. Sometimes churches don't want to have just a bunch of activity with nothing behind it, and so they create a bunch of emotion. And emotion is not the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. It can Emotion is good, but, but emotionalism is not always the same thing as the presence of the Holy Spirit. We'll save that one for another day. <laughs> you know, what is it? What is it that can lead to this kind of nominal faith? You know, there's a lot of different things that could do this, but, but perhaps one of the biggest challenges that, that we can have is, is when we live in the past. Sardis's glory days were behind it. The church in Sardis's glory days were behind it. And sometimes it's easy for us to live in the past. Anytime we talk about the ways that God works, we talk about things that God has done in the past. Anytime we give stories of the incredible movement of God, we tell stories from the past. Anytime we dream dreams of what the future might look like, we look back to the past. You know, when we're living in the past, we miss out on what it is that God is doing in the present. You know, we were reminded a little bit ago this morning that God is with us now. That God is present, that God is here, that God is active, and that God is moving. If the only place where, where you can identify God's work in your life is in the past, then that can be a warning sign to us. That we're failing to miss out on, on what it is that, that God is doing here and now. And so what is it that we do if we, if we hear these things and we say, you know, I don't want to get stuck in that place. Like, I don't want to get caught up in, in a life of, of nominal Christianity. What is it that we're called to do? Well, there were five imperatives that we read just a few moments ago. The first thing that was said is to, to be watchful. To be watchful. Don't be like that. Don't be like the city of Sardis. You know, Sardis had built this great city. They'd done all of this hard work, and they were surrounded by cliffs, and they had walls, and they thought nobody can get in, so we don't need to really worry about it. And so they all went to bed at night, and a thief came in in the middle of the night. Don't get caught up in that in your spiritual life. Don't say, you know, we've built up all of these things. Everything is good. We don't really need to be that concerned. The first imperative is to be, be alert, to, to be watching, to be faithful, to be looking around you. You know, sometimes we've, we've heard this uh, passage referenced with that, that phrase, a thief in the night. And typically when we hear that, what it is, is we're warned not to miss out on when Jesus Christ comes again. And we certainly don't want to miss out on that. But there's another warning. We don't want to miss out on the presence of Jesus Christ right now because he's with us. And we don't want to miss out on what it is that Jesus is doing right now. And so how are we going to leave, lean into that and, and live into that and, and experience the work of God that God is doing in our lives here right now? You know, the second imperative for the, for the church in Sardis and for us is to, to strengthen what remains to strengthen what remains. You know, that's, a, that's actually an interesting thing for, for it to say this. The, 
the church in Sardis was doing all of this stuff. From the outside, they look alive, but, but the warning was is that, that they were doing all these actions with nothing behind it, and so they were in reality dead. But the message to them isn't to stop what they were doing, but rather to strengthen those things. Sometimes there's a temptation we have to just try to get rid of what we're doing and start doing new stuff. And one of the reminders that we see here is, is, is you know, some of their practices weren't bad practices. They, they just lost the heart of things. That what they needed wasn't new practices. What they really needed was a new filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. What they needed was the Holy Spirit to fill them once again so, so that there would be meaning behind what they were doing. You know, the third imperative is to remember. Remember what you have received and remember what you have heard. You know, Sardis needed to remember the past so that they could move forward. You know, I'm reminded of, of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is this, the great halls of faith, right? We have all of these stories of these wonderful examples of people who've been faithful in the, in the midst of, of, of all of the different situations that life brings. And it's this incredible picture of, of these heroes of our faith. But if you get to chapter 12, chapter 12 says this, So then, in light of what you've heard, in light of remembering all the ways that God has been faithful in the past, let us run the race that is laid out in front of us. And we're told that we have to remember what God has done in the past so we can live into where God is calling us in the future. Remembering is not just recalling past events. It's being reminded of what God has done in the past so that we can follow God into the future. Are you with me there? So when we remember our faith, when we remember what God has done, it's not just about the past. Really, it's about what God wants to do in the future. And so we're called to remember what God's done in the past so we can leave, live into that in the future. And then in light of that, we're, we're told to repent, which, which really repenting is, is just changing what we're doing, right? It's turning around. And so for those who've gotten stagnant, he's saying, hey, now that you've remembered, don't stay there. Get going. Follow after what God is calling you to do and live for God. And then the last imperative is to hold on. Because there's this reminder when we're living out of faith that affects our lives, when we're living out of faith, this faith that is contrary to the world around us, and when we embody this faith in our daily lives, not just when we gather in this place, but when we embody this faith as we walk out the doors, as we go to work, as, as we're at home, as we're spending time with family or friends, you know, when we embody this faith, there's going to be some friction sometimes. And there's going to be some challenge. And so the reminder is to hold on. Hold on. Because when we're living in this way, God will be faithful with us. And God will be faithful to the end. You know, as I think of all of this, I guess my, I just have a couple questions for us today. First question is, have you settled for an easy faith? 
You know, has your faith kind of just found a place where it fits nicely in with everything else in your life? Have you allowed your faith to be tame, to be easy? Have you stopped growing in faith? Have, have you figured out all of the answers to all of life's problems and there's never any new challenges for you anymore? Has your faith turned into a routine where, where you do a lot of stuff but there's not really anything behind it. You know, some, some years ago, probably 14 or 15 years ago, we, we were living in Wisconsin at the time. And uh, Jennifer and I were, were going to go visit her parents in Michigan. We were going to go camp for a few days and then go visit her parents. And so rather than driving all the way down around Lake Michigan, we decided to take uh, one of the car ferries across the lake. The SS Badger It was an old railroad ferry. And so we got on this ferry, and we found seats on the deck to enjoy the sunshine for the, the three-and-a-half-hour trip across the lake. And, and partway through the journey, I, I wanted to go see if I could find something to drink. And so I went down below deck, and there was this, this kind of large room down there with tables and chairs. And, and the first thing I noticed when I walked in is there was music playing. And then I actually kind of had to, to walk from the side kind of into the middle of the room to kind of go down. And... Up kind of in the front of the room, there was a table about like this with a chair. And there was a, there was a girl sitting on this chair, singing. And I do the, the air quotes with her singing because it was some like Barry Manilow song or something like that. And there were words coming out of her mouth. But that was about it. And I'd seen enough American Idol at the time to know that that if there wasn't passion behind what you were singing, it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Do you, you know what I'm saying there? You know, is your, is your faith turned into that? Action without substance. Pop without fizz, right? Has your faith turned into something like that? And if it has, then I just invite you to remember. Remember it, what it is that God has done. Remember where you were when God found you. Remember how God changed your life. Remember the ways that you've seen God act in the past. And then as you remember, respond to what it is that God is doing. Because you've seen what God's done in the past, live into what God's calling you to do in the future. And then just hold on to him as we journey forward. Amen? Let's pray together today. Lord, we thank you that, that you are a God who is moving and who is active and who is with us. And Lord, my, my prayer today for myself and for this church is that we would continue to see where you are working in our midst. Lord, that we would never rest easy in our faith, but that we would continue to follow you each and every day, to live into the future that you are calling us to join you in, so that we would live the kinds of lives that would bear witness of your goodness and grace to everybody that we encounter. So God, I, I pray today, that you would help us to live the kind of faith that we have to hold on, that we have to hold on to you as we follow where you are leading, as we live out 
lives of, of love and obedience and grace and mercy in a world around us that is broken and that needs to see that kind of life lived out so they can experience it themselves. So God, today, we just humble ourselves before you. And Lord, we pray that by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us, that you would help us to live as your faithful witnesses for the world to see. In your name we pray, amen. stand this morning as we prepare to move on with our day, move on with our week. Pray that the words from that message would be moved deep within you. That this song would be a testimony of our lives.